0: To the MTB Tribe Podcast, your trail map for the world of mountain biking, and now I'll introducing your host Gareth Beckett.
1: Howdy, mountain bikers! Thanks for being here, and welcome to episode 186 of the MTB Tribe Podcast. I'm here as always to help you find out more about mountain biking, how to go out on the trails, keep you stoked and hopefully learn a little more about mountain biking and the people involved. So thanks for being with us this week, and thanks for tuning into the show. On today's episode, we are chatting with Nigel Reeve, founder and owner of NSR Racing. Now, Nigel is originally from New South Wales in Australia, but is currently living in Switzerland. Now, Nigel has got some great stories because he worked for a long time on the World Cup circuit, doing wrenching and everything else that comes with that mechanic position. He also lived in Morzine for 10 years, splitting his time between working the World Cup circuit, setting up his first suspension company in Australia, uh, plus guiding and mechanic and over the summer months in Morzine. So he's seen a lot within the MTB industry you've seen all those crazy parties Morzine, all the crazy parties on the World Cup circuit and all that good stuff that we love to hear so much about, we chat to Nigel about all that, we chat to him also about his NSR Racing Suspension Performance Company that he has founded and set up in Switzerland, so join us as we chat about the good and crazy times of being on the World Cup circuit how to set up your bike correctly, breaking necks And shark attacks of all things. Um, So without further ado we'll get Nigel on the show I think and welcome Nigel to the MTB Tribe Podcast. Hi Nigel, welcome to the MTB Tribe Podcast. How's things with you this morning sir?
2: Hey Gareth, Um, yeah well thank you, Uh, happy to be on here.
1: Excellent mate, excellent and listen it's it's great to get you on. I've heard good stuff about you uh, from past guests and Say you have a few stories and stuff to tell, so it'll be interesting.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You've obviously been speaking to the wrong people,
1: (laughs) and uh, now we were chatting briefly a few days ago just before you come on here, and you certainly have lived an interesting life from my perspective, from this end of the microphone, anyway. Um, And we'll get into all that. But we want to chat about your your NSR racing performance suspension company as well. We definitely want to get into that. And that's really why you're on the show. But you have a very interesting story with your mechanic on the World Cup and all this here. Um, So we'll get into all that if you don't mind. Um, But first of all, like how did you get into mountain biking? How did you find your passion in the sport?
2: Uh, the same way as quite a lot of kids do. Um, your mum refuses to buy you a motorbike. Um, <laughs> so you end up on a bicycle instead.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: man, that's still true, huh? yeah?
2: Yeah, um, it honestly is like how like, I've run into loads of people who are, you know, same kind of deal. Yeah,
1: and it's funny because a lot of guys that are fast on mountain bikes. When you actually chat to them and you find out their background, a lot of them have come from motorbike in, in some form, you know, either motocross or trials or something, and they just adapt those skills so quickly onto the mountain bike that it's ridiculous how good these guys can get at such a short in such a short period of time.
2: Yeah, I guess it's just the whole two wheels thing and ha- having, um, you know, a whole bunch of learned reactions which then apply to the to the other sport. It's kind of it kind of goes the other way. Like you put mountain bikers on motorbikes, and they usually go quite fast for a short period before they tip over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, crossover skills will get you so far. Um, and I, I guess it's probably a bit easier going from moto to bike to bicycle rather than the other way around because um, a moto is a little bit more complicated
1: yeah yeah for sure and you know it's funny a lot of guys a lot of mountain bikers train on the motocross bikes right you like you see a lot of them out on motocross bikes as well
2: yeah it's um i mean it's really cool because it's a tax write-off um for all the pro riders because it's you know a training tool wow Um, but it's also kind of a a bit of a common piss take around the pits because like basically you know, everyone there just kind of wishes they were racing moto. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: <laughs> collectively, none of them are, are good enough, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: it's interesting, man. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's weird, and we all kind of enjoy You know, we enjoy the motocross stuff as well. And, like, I, I, I worked a little bit with Fox back in the day and was in the pits with those guys and stuff at some of the big motocross meetings. And, uh, yeah, them dudes are nuts, hey. You know, they just—they're crazy. I—I
2: I don't don't know really. Like, I, <laughs> I, I think it depends on how close you are to the actual humans who are doing it. Because, um, like, everyone likes to write downhillers off as being nuts, and if you look at the the injury potential and an injury rate, um, particularly like just below the top tier of the sport um it's quite high and you get you know people from motocross will be like you know i'm not going to you know do downhill that's way too dangerous like yeah there's no runoff or anything like that um but when you're in the middle of it and you it's like any risk taking i think it gets rationalized and you kind of can see the human side where um people are making just normal calculated decisions
1: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because from the outside looking in, you're just like, that's absolutely crazy. But these guys have been doing it for so long that they come prepared, you know, and mentally they're prepared. They know they can do it. They've done it a hundred times. So it doesn't seem as bad to them. You know, that kind of way.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like, um, I hung out with some base jumpers, um, way back in the day, um, just like driving the getaway car and stuff. and. (laughs) You think like urban base jumping, yeah, that's you know pretty high risk. But there was a situation once where everyone went up a this massive uh, electricity pylon, and then the fog came in, and the only way for them to get down was to jump oh. the sixteen thousand volt electric fence at the bottom. And we're on the two way radios for probably three or four hours, and I can just hear them chatting, and they're just like they're at the top trying to make a, a rational, you know, decision about at which point will it be best to, to, you know, try and jump and, you know, everyone got down. Okay. Um, it's just a matter of sort of waiting and, and so on. So you, I think, yeah, it's just that looking from the outside thing. Like it's, it's not the same from when you're in the middle of it.
1: Yeah, it's weird because you've spent so much time doing it and everything else, you're mentally prepared. Yeah, it's cool. Now, you're speaking to us from Switzerland at the minute, Nigel.
2: Yes, um, apparently a neutral country deep in the middle of Europe.
1: (laughs) All right, so how did you get... But where are you originally from? Where were you born?
2: Uh, I'm from New South Wales in Australia. um, And basically... Grew up there, moved to London when I was 21, and then uh, was there for five years, and moved out to Morzine in France.
1: Okay, cool. And you get into mountain biking, obviously, when you were in Australia in New South Wales. Like, what was the scene like there when you were growing up?
2: Uh, w- I grew up in the country, so there literally was not a scene. Um, wow! Like, uh, there was one guy who lived about. 30 k's away who rode um and would hook up occasionally on weekends but that was (laughs) that was it um like proper middle of nowhere um
1: yeah yeah and like the scene's exploding over there right like have you been home recently have you read in australia recently or
2: uh i haven't been home for a couple of years but yeah it's completely changed like where i grew up there's now um you know, a couple of mountain bike parks. They've held like national XC races and stuff there. Um, and yeah, there's bike parks popping up all over the show and, um, it's, it's a big business now in Australia.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, What do you call the capital Australia again?
2: What's that? The capital? Yeah. Camp, camp,
1: uh, Canberra. Canberra.
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: I've had a, I've had a couple of people on from Canberra and, um, you know, I'm ashamed to say that I never thought that was the capital of Australia for the, for a start. But um, most people probably say Melbourne or Sydney, right? Uh, yeah,
2: um, they, it's the it's a common mistake for people who didn't grow up, grow up there, I guess.
1: Yeah, and but the scene there seems massive. Like you know, like chatting to those guys, the scene seems huge. Everything from you know holidays and kid kid parks and you know had learning schools and you know it's just massive it just it seems to be going really really well like do you know anybody from around that area that's riding there
2: uh just a few people who race like um uh kaya hearn and his sister sean caroline buchanan um a few others um all people I either met um when i was there for world champs about mm. what, 10 11 years ago or just people who come over and race
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Coraline's had a tough life, huh? She's had some injuries.
2: Yeah, she's, um, she is a very tough human being. Like the amount of massive injuries she's not only got through, but come out the other side and just put down some really mind blowing performances. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um,
1: she's amazing, huh?
2: Yeah. Pretty incredible.
1: Yeah. So you got into the mechanics, side of things, how did that happen? How did that come about?
2: Uh, probably the same way as most people who ranch on bikes. Like you start off, uh, looking after your own bike. And then, um, when I left high school, I thought it would be way cooler to go and work in a bike shop than it would be to, um, do any further education or anything like that. Um, and so mechanics was kind of like the way into that um you know just the way into having a job really Mm -hmm.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. yeah no it's cool like and so did you start out or in like a a national store like a multinational store or something like that or did you go more local to some of the, the the small local shops
2: uh i started off in like a a real a real local bike shop um you know, like three employees or something and a really good um, kind of history of like help, like helping kids out and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and kind of went from there to like a bigger chain store. Um, and then uh, after that, moved to London and worked in a um, kind of a small chain, I think five, five stores or something like that in South mm-hmm. London.
1: Yeah, how did you find London compared to Australia? That would have been a change. <laughs>
2: that was eye-opening. <laughs> uh, yeah. it, was, it was super cool. Like, um, you know, obviously the there's an awesome BMX scene there. And um, the at that point in time, there wasn't great riding scenes in Australia. Like, there was a lot of people riding, but there wasn't that thing... Like in the UK, you can go down to the local pub, you know, any day after work and know that you're going to run into someone who rides bikes um, and who's into the kind of the same things you are. Mm -hmm. And definitely wasn't that kind of level of riding scene in Australia. So that was super cool.
1: Um, Wow. Yeah, cool, man. Cool. And like you go from that to – morzine were you were you wrenching on the world cup scene before you went to morzine or how did that all happen
2: no um i was just managing a bike shop in um uh surrey or something at the time went out to morzine and that was kind of the point where i realized what downhill bikes were for mm. Um and uh it was living out there that got me in touch with the, the people involved in racing at a high level. So after a couple of years out there, um, I have kind of managed to impress enough people to be able <laughs> to get a job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Morzine's interesting, right? Because we were chatting before we hit the record button there about Australia and how people, when they're traveling the world or they go on a big trip, they end up in Australia, these younger people, and then they end up staying there. Morzine's very similar, right? there's a lot of mountain bikers go out there for a holiday and they end up fricking working there for like 10 years or something. Did you go out for a year for a holiday? Why did you end up staying there?
2: Um, I went out for a holiday and then about halfway through the holiday, my mate Derek was like, we've got to come back and do a whole season next year. And so I did that. And, and then that was basically it. I was then based, yeah, I didn't necessarily live there the whole year round that much. I used to do back-to-back summers with Australia. Um, but then I did every summer for, I don't know, 10 or 11 years or something like that. Jeez. And And loads of people I know who moved out there at, when I did um, have done the exact same thing. Like, they're, they're still there. People like Jason Marshall was there before me. Um you know, like, there's these people who are kind of like the mainstays of the, the bike scene out there who, mm. same kind of deal, just just washed up there and stayed.
1: Yeah. Like, so you were doing summer in Australia, and then you done, again, summer in Morzine, so you, you kind of were missing out in the winters.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I did three winters in Morzine, and then um, decided I'd, I'd had enough of the, the snow scene. Um, and at that point, I... Um, Started a suspension tuning company in Australia and used to go back do that um, and then leave it in the hands of someone else to run whilst I went um, back overseas and I was racing. Um, I was working at World Cups by that point, so it um, mm-hmm. worked out really nicely.
1: Yeah, cool. And, and Morzine, well, tends to be the capital of mo- European mountain biking, right? Everybody seems to go there. Like, how have you seen that change over the years?
2: oh wow um when i first moved out there in 2005 pre-season when we'd be doing shuttles and stuff we used to struggle to get five or six people together to go shuttling in the afternoon
1: you are joking me
2: like there was literally there was probably um you know 10 people that you had phone numbers for who rode bikes (laughs) and of course yeah a few of them would be working and so on so you'd yeah, like you would actually struggle to get the numbers together to go shuttling. Um, so
1: so you weren't working out there as a... Were you a mountain bike guide or what was your actual job out there, your position out there?
2: Uh, first season, I worked for a holiday company, wrenching um, on rental bikes and then guiding a couple of days a week. And then the following season, I worked in a bike shop and started doing suspension and stuff like that.
1: Okay. So at that stage... I take it the lifts and stuff were still taking bikers up the mountain, were they?
2: Yeah, yeah. It was, to be honest, there's not many more lifts open now than there was then. There's just a lot more tracks now and a lot more official tracks with a lot, a lot more work put into them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's, it blows my mind. I've snowboarded there. I've never, I've never t- taken the bike over. Um, oh, what? <laughs> yeah. No, I've never. I know. Crazy, eh? Um You see, my problem is I have a few friends. We all surf together, and we go snowboarding once a year religiously. And I can't get them to go mountain. They don't mountain bike, so there's no point in me taking the mountain biking or anything, you know? Um, now, in saying that, I've got one of my close friends. He's got interested in mountain biking this year, so he's just brought, bought a brand new bike and stuff. So I'll maybe be able to twist his wrist and get him over you know but (laughs) it's mainly snowboarding for me when i go go abroad um snowboarding or surfing just to get you warm water you know because i'm fed up with five degrees or six degrees here
2: (laughs) i can't i can't believe people even learn to surf like in places like um like northern ireland or uk and stuff that that blows me away
1: yeah no it's crazy um, like the summer here gets to about 14 degrees but it never really gets that warm you know um, but yeah the winter can be brutal here like you're talking 4-5 degrees water temp minus degrees air temperature ice on the, in the car park it is tough man it is, it is brutal you know it's you just—it's a different breed. Like I'm too, almost too old for it now. I have to get changed in the house and then <laughs> <laughs> just jump in the car and get changed in the
0: shower when I go home.
1: <laughs> but yeah, it's desperate. Like um you know, and the worst thing I ever done was <clears throat> I went and surfed in warm water. And you know, I've been very fortunate. I've surfed around the world a couple of times. Neverland in Australia, your home part of the world, but. And that it destroyed me. Water was too warm. The waves were too good. And now I'm just like, dude, this sucks. Like, why are we going on surfing here?
2: <laughs> I I can understand that, dude. Like, when when I moved to London, um, I didn't own a hoodie or a pair of jeans because I'd been living in Queensland and <sighs> just don't need that type of clothing there. And, yeah, I, I went from – well, I actually – went across in the Australian winter. So I went from, you know, maybe, maybe having to wear two t-shirts if I went out at night, like, you Mm. know, and shorts, obviously to, to summer in London. And it was fucking. (laughs) And it felt like it was like every time you left the house, it felt like it was just about to rain. And then I, after a couple of years, I realized that's just the way the UK is. It's always just about to rain yeah oh. yeah
1: i it's not and like in the north coast here it can be you do get four seasons in one day here easy you know it can just be crazy and it's funny when somebody says to you what's the weather to do the day you just say well look out the window
0: <laughs> because <laughs> that's what it's to do
1: <laughs> no point going by weather charts because it can change in five minutes
2: I used to hate that classic thing of, like, you wake up, and it's mint and sunny, and you're like, oh, sweet, oh, yeah, like, going to have breakfast, and then, like, do all this cool stuff outside, and by the time you've had breakfast, it's pissing with rain, and you're just like, ah oh. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, maybe not.
1: <laughs> yeah, brutal, man, brutal. It's crazy, dude, it's crazy. Um, so tell us a little bit about the World Cup scene. What was that like for you? I'm sure that was pretty crazy at times.
2: Yeah, that was, I mean... When I got into it, it was a dream come true. Um, it's kind of like the, as a mechanic, it's kind of like the pin- pinnacle of what you can do. Um, and yeah, I guess I went all the way from like you know just being this um, wide-eyed, you know, super fan kind of being well out of my depth in the first year to ten or twelve years later. Um, you know, went through. Uh, like winning races, winning World Cup overalls with riders, you know, all the way to – and seeing also by the end there was these riders who were at the peak of their game that I could remember, you know, meeting when they were maybe eight years old or something like that. Um, really? Wow. Yeah. Um, like I, could, I can remember um, – like I remember racing Danny Hart when he was 13 or something. I can remember Laurie Greenland coming out to Morzine with his dad when he was eight or nine,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and of course Tane who lived out there. And, um, so yeah, it's pretty nuts. Like to to go from the whole superfan aspect of like getting into a scene that you've only ever seen from from the outside, like you know in in uh, in videos and magazines or the internet or whatever, um, to eventually kind of just being so embedded in it that um, it's just like family, I guess. Mm,
1: yeah. Like, can you tell us some of the teams you worked with?
2: Yeah. Um, started off with Santa Cruz Syndicate in 08 with Nathan Rennie. Um, moved with him to Kenda Moorwood in 2009. Then Kenda Lapierre in 2010 with like Windmasters Masters and Nathan Rankin. Wow. And then to Da Vinci in 2011 and worked with uh, Stevie Smith from then through to 2016. Um, And then at the end of 2016, Da Vinci just shut that team down. So I moved to Canyon um, and took Mark Wallace with me um, and then worked with Canyon till the end of 2019 when I decided I'd had enough.
1: Mm, mm, Yeah. Wow. Like it's, it's so cool, man. And, you know, looking from the outside, we really don't know what goes on there. Like, how closely do you work with the athletes? Like, are they best buddies? Is it a work and relationship? Like, what's that that kind of whole thing like there?
2: It varies. Like, it's dependent on the, the personality of the rider and, in some ways, what they require from you. Mm. Uh, definitely, like during a race weekend you are as a mechanic you're probably the closest human to them um and you have the most you know in-depth intense relationship in those three or four days um depending on uh the difference in your personalities and stuff depends on how close you are outside of that Mm. um so, for example, with Stevie in the off-season, I'd only talk to him maybe two or three times in the off-season. Mm-hmm. Like it was very much we had, like, the work half of the year and then the not work half of the year. Um, but then with, say, Mark, um, partly because I'd, I worked with Mark from his first World Champs when he was a junior, um, so I've known him uh, for a lot much more of his life um i i talk to him quite regularly even now um you know we'll we'll talk every few weeks or whatever still Mm -hmm. still about work stuff though still about um you know bike setup and and that sort of thing um so i guess it is more of a, a work relationship than a than a like a super deep personal relationship
1: Yeah, yeah, and as far as these teams and brands go and stuff, like, do they run budgets by you or anything like that, or you know, how do they look at payments and you know, well, no, we can't put a new piece on that bike because we don't have the budget for it. Is there anything like that goes into it, or or is it just you get what you need?
2: Uh, No, there's definitely always limitations. Um, Mm. So depending on like there's, there's kind of two things you've touched on there. Like in terms of the the components and so on, like the, the keeping the bike running side of things, it really depends on who your athlete is. So um, if you take, say, the Canyon team, for, for example, and, and Troy Brosnan, he's the number one rider on that team. He's also the number like the number one rider or one of the number one riders for all the sponsors so there is pretty much no question about what goes on his bike it's just like oh mm. that's done one run and needs to be replaced We'll we just replace it um but then at the same t- t- time everyone knows like you have limited stuff in the truck so um if there's one one new tire left in the truck obviously it goes to troy but If Troy doesn't need it, then it goes to the next rider down and so on. Mm. So, um, I mean, from the outside looking in, the parts consumption seems like it's probably limitless, um, but it really isn't like it's something that the head mechanics have to plan out um, and, you know, prepare for. And in some cases, it's something that the sponsors have to be educated on at the start of the year, when you know you order a hundred sets of wheels, and they're like, "Oh well, but you've only got four riders," and you like, you then show them how it all calculates out, and they're sort of like, "Okay, yeah, we can understand why you need a hundred pairs of wheels now." Mm, mm. Then on the bu- on the budget side of things, teams with the the mon- actual cash and so on, teams are run pretty tight, like they try and maximise the marketing potential, so the number of riders and number of events and so on for the amount of cash that they have.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like everything comes down to budgets now, doesn't it, and anything we do. But, you know, that's interesting you say that you work quite closely with the brands and stuff, you know, because looking from the outside in, you'd probably think the brands would say, right we want to sponsor your team how much is that going to cost okay here's that money see see at the end of the year but they have a lot more input as far as product go and everything else and you have to run them through that whole aspect
2: yeah in the negotiation period um which is usually done around world champs the previous year there's that backwards and forwards like x amount of cash x amount of product Mm -hmm. um and uh some companies like Fox or SRAM or Shimano will uh, put into that um race support as well because you know they attend the races and they have spare parts and you know they do service and that sort of thing. So that's given a monetary amount as well. Then after that comes like the ordering phase where um That's where there's a lot of backwards and forwards because sometimes, uh, sponsors, which are kind of new to the sport are a bit surprised at what you choose to, to order or choose to run, um, be it quantities or, um, you know, using a far lighter rim than they thought, you know, you should be using or, or whatever. Um, and then after that, um, and you've got all your stuff in sort of by January or February, hopefully. Um, there's not that much more backwards and forwards apart from with you know product feedback when stuff's breaking too quickly or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow,
1: it's crazy, isn't it? Like, um, you know, I remember reading this thing about Formula One car racing. Now I'm not into Formula One car racing at all, but it was interesting what you were saying about the riders there and that you know you would think when a team hires a rider or brings a rider onto the team is basically to win but there's you know just listening to you there there's a lot more goes into it as far as what sponsorship they can bring etc etc and I remember reading the thing about the Formula 1 car racing and basically you would not be signed to a team unless you could bring and I think this figure's right but I'm talking a number of years ago so it could be wrong but unless you could bring 500 million quids worth of of sponsorship with you, you would not get to race one of those cars.
2: Yeah, that's the um, that's the really interesting thing about the like the difference between say high end motorsport where um, I know in I think last year's WRC there was six paid seats. So the top six drivers were being paid and then everyone else was paying to be there. Jeez. And, then you look in downhill, and people who are getting twenty fifth, maybe to thirtieth, even even lower than that, are actually on not bad salaries. Like they're not getting paid anything like the you know the top riders like Karen or Loic or whoever, but they're still getting paid enough money to live on you know, to pay their rent and, and all that sort of thing. And in that whole discussion about the, the reducing the World Cup field to being, you know, smaller and s- smaller to suit uh, Red Bull TV and so on, that whole discussion about, um, uh, like, where the cutoff point is is quite, quite an interesting thing because in some ways mountain bikers are a lot better off and it's a lot more accessible than, say, the motorsports. Mm. And then in other ways, people are looking at it and going like, "Oh, privateers are the backbone of the sport," and yada yada yada.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, very interesting. Like, but for those top riders, you know, those top ten or twelve or fifteen riders, like, are they making a good living from it? Are they?
2: Uh, they are. Well, the top five, um, yes. Like they're they're making some. Um, you know, like six-figure salaries and so on. Okay. Um, but it's for a very short time. Oh. Mm. Um, so that they, like, they have, first of all, they've got to get into the top five to demand that salary. Okay. So by the time they're, like, a firm top five rider, they're at least 22 years old. And then riders tend to have peaked before 27. So they have that one little window where they can command a high salary. Um but I mean it can all go away very quickly. Like there's a lot of um things in contracts about um reducing salaries, you know, if they're if they're injured and stuff like that. So um yeah, and then once you get out of the top five, the it gets very uneven very quickly. Um, and you know, you get guys who are in the top 10 who are, um, maybe getting 20 grand a year or even less. Um, and then you get guys who are in, in 20th and they're getting 80 grand a year. So, um, and then after about 30th or 35th, it does start to become a bit more privateerish after that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's crazy, man. You know, and, it's funny, when you look at a lot of things, even the music industry seems to be kind of similar now. You know, you, you have bands like Metallica, and ACDC and Iron Maiden that are just worth an absolute fortune. And then you have bands like Slayer and stuff like that that are really, really well known. But those guys were working full-time jobs to freaking maybe 15 years ago. You know what I mean? It's, i do not uh, yeah, it's just nuts. Like, there's another band I listened to called Sick of It All, a New York band, and it blew my mind that they actually they, they had to cut one of their tours. These guys have got like freaking ten or eleven albums out or something.
0: Yeah. And yeah. they had
1: they had to cut one of their tours early a few years ago because one of the guys couldn't get it off work. <laughs>
0: and yeah. you're just like,
1: what? Really? You know, and. You know, it's funny because then I started to look into it a little bit uh, through sport and everything else, and it can be very similar in certain sports. You know, it's like you say; those top, those top handful of guys make fantastic money, and then by the time you get down to number thirty, you just you really can't make a living from it, or you you make a very very moderate living from it. It's nuts.
2: Yeah, it's um, I guess it's more difficult for athletes to work. And train, So they tend to, um, you know, kind of end up just not really working much and, and just kind of scraping by in, in order to do their sport. Mm. But, yeah, you're right. It is pretty crazy. Like, um, 2013, I think, Damien O'Ton got – he was second overall in the EWS, and he was working as a plumber full-time that year. Yeah, that's just – Unreal. Um, But then that's kind of the thing that um, it's good for the young and up up and coming writers to really understand is that like nothing nothing is for free. Like you really do have to work for it. Mm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, it's one of those things if you were really, really young or your parent, let's say your parent wanted you to make big dough from sports. And so they could retire. (laughs) You know, you wouldn't push them towards mountain biking, would you? You know what I mean? You don't get into it for the money.
2: Hmm? It's tennis or golf lessons. Isn't that the key to a good retirement?
1: (laughs) That's it, man. Like, you know, you wouldn't send them out rock climbing or something, you know. Um, Uh,
2: Yeah. Um, That's a good example. That should probably – people should bear in mind that no matter – Even if mountain biking isn't the the best paid sport, there's definitely worst paid sports out there, isn't
0: there?
1: Yeah, definitely, man, definitely. You certainly do it for the passion. And I think to put your life on the line and the things these guys are doing is a passion. You know, you would very, very quickly hang up your boots if it was just to make money with some of the crashes and falls these guys
2: are doing like. Yeah, I think that's true for a lot of like top sports people. You have you have to love doing it because it is so hard to be consistently at the top of your game and requires so much from you um, that there'd just be no you just couldn't keep doing it if you're just in it for the coin.
1: Yeah, I think so. And you know, to be honest, I think a lot of these top sports people. The very pinnacle There's just something not a hundred percent right with them. They have maybe a little bit of, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, they're they're fanatical. That's what I'm trying to say. They're fanatical about it. I remember I've had the opportunity to hang with Kelly Slater a few times and have dinner with them and stuff, which actually blew my mind because I grew up. He was my kind idol when I was growing up, yeah, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, he still gets excited. Now this is he's eleven times world champion. And you know, he's got the he can surf in the best waves on the planet. If there's a real good swell, he can fly there, go there, surf, figure out where else is going to be working, fly there, do that. He's got that he's got that kind of reach. But he still gets really excited about three or four foot onshore slope. <laughs> you know, now there's something wrong with that guy
2: it's that's why he's um 11 times world champion (laughs) yeah because he's just um i've seen that in in mountain bikers like stevie smith was um a really good example like he was just so stoked that he got to ride his bike that all the other all the other shit didn't matter you know like you you wake up on qualifying day at a world cup and it's pissing with rain and you know it's not going to be a comfortable day he would have the outlook of like oh this is going to be awesome and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at, at the same time there's other other riders waking up looking at the window and just going oh man and yeah. they they've lost it right there you know
1: um, yeah
2: it's crazy
1: man It's crazy, because a lot of it at that level, that really, really top level, a lot of it is very much mental, you know?
2: Oh, it's all mental. Like, there's the best riders in the world, like the guys who are actually, you know, better than anyone else at riding a bike down a hill aren't the guys who are filling the podium. The guys filling the podium are the best bike racers in the world, and they're the guys who are best at laying down a pretty much flawless run at 4 p.m on Sunday afternoon Mm. like um and yeah there's so many like all the riders that you sort of see you know people saying that oh this guy should get given a chance like um you know he's got so much potential there's this huge amount of riders who are amazing bike riders but they're not amazing bike racers Mm -hmm. so they they go really fast in qualifying or they have this one amazing result but they can't just keep keep backing it up week after week you know yeah yeah
1: no you see that you see that in a lot a lot of sports um and yeah it's the competition mind as well you know when it's i don't know if there's much psyching out on the Mountain bike field, is there? is there a bit of that? It's taking your competitors out a little bit? You know, you walk by your competitor who's getting ready to go and you go, really? You're running that tire? Honestly?
2: <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a few people who try and do that. Um, it, thankfully, it's not very many. Um, the, the thing is, which I think they maybe haven't come to realize, is... If they're at the top, um, you know, if they're, you know, in it to win it, the other guys who are also in it to win it, who are genuine threats are strong enough mentally that they won't get thrown by that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but I've definitely seen it happen from like a number two rider to a number one rider. And I've just seen the number one rider just shut the guy down. Like, mm-hmm. it just basically laugh at them and tell them to get fucked.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh,
1: Like I had Andy Ward on the show and um, you know, Andy, you know, virus. Um, He was telling me that Sean Palmer was his big. You know, he loved Sean Palmer uh, when he came on the race scene. Were you there when he came on the scene as well?
2: No. Um, the only time I ever met him briefly was when, um, uh he was around at the races for a little bit with intense in i don't know like 2015 or 2016 or something um and as far as i was concerned like he's still probably like you know way up there in the the untouchable celebrity kind of status that i never really spoke to him to be
1: honest (laughs) yeah because he came from the snowboard background and I thought, this guy's going to bring some spark to this, you know, it's just going to be crazy, but I think the whole scene was kind of crazy around then, right?
2: Yeah, if you talk to, um, like, I came in at kind of the after that, had sort of died out, um, but if you talk to people like Rennie or PD or whatever, um, Warner's probably a good one for stories.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, like, you hear the stuff they used to get up to and um, it was, yeah, it was (laughs) was pretty crazy. Like, um, but then at the same, same time, like some of that stuff still goes on now. It's just that people are quite careful to make sure that it, it doesn't get onto the internet. um, Yeah. Because it's ah, seen as being bad for the sport. Like, People riding rental cars off at Monsonan, for example, or other people getting locked up in jail in Milan. <laughs> least oh, chance.
0: dear. Not that
2: yeah. names there, but, um, yeah, there's still a bit, um, oh, um, people riding rental cars off in the main street of, uh, Andorra as well.
0: Jangers.
2: We um, there's, there, there are shenanigans still going on. It's just that, um, yeah, it gets people do a good job of keeping it off the internet.
1: Yeah, wow. It's kind of like, okay, you enter the club, leave your phone at the door.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think there's also the understanding that um, if you publicize someone's um, drunken stuff up, then that gives them, you know, Uh, kind of permission for them to publicize yours. So there's a goes around, comes around, kind of where you don't, um, you know, don't do something that's going to have a bad impact on other people.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. It doesn't help anyone.
1: No, like these guys train hard, they ride hard, you know, they're bounty party hard, you know.
2: Yeah,
0: exactly.
1: Yeah, crazy. Tell me about the time... We were chatting about just a few days ago there. Tell me about the time in Morzine you had a bad accident. You broke your neck or something?
2: Yeah. um, I just went up for lunchtime runs and um, had a a bit of a bobble on the first run. Um, Land on my head, knocked myself out and stuff. Decided to keep riding, which probably wasn't a smart decision.
1: Uh,
2: And then um, a few runs later, clipped a tree and broke my hand, so I decided it was time to go home. Anyway, oh, no. <laughs> went home, had a shower, went back to work. Next day, I woke up, head didn't move. Uh, went for X-rays, and um, I was kind of living under the radar a bit in in Morzine at that point, um, lacking certain uh, documents and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, one document I didn't have was health insurance, so oh, went in for an X-ray. I and they x-rayed and they're like oh yeah you've um you've got a i think the term is bifacetal dislocation so broke uh, compression fractures and dislocation of vertebrae um yes yeah, so you've got this um that'll be 120 euros please <laughs> that, <laughs> was it. that was um, that's why kids you should always have health insurance because otherwise um <laughs> you're on your own
1: yeah but €120, Euros, it's not bad, though. Like, you couldn't see a consultant here for that price.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, it, it wasn't their fault um, mm. or anything like that. Um, I still have problems with my neck today because of that. Um, so there's there's definitely a lesson there um, that you should probably let your, your injuries heal properly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. Did that put you off riding or anything?
2: Uh, Actually... In a way, yes, um, because uh, because my neck has wasn't um, the injury wasn't treated properly and didn't heal as well as it should have. Um, if I land on my head again, I'm obviously at a much higher risk. So that was pretty much the point I stopped riding downhill um, because to ride downhill I would I'd have to wear a liat brace and I just found that way too uncomfortable. So. Yeah. That was that. Um and I mean I was I don't know, I was probably twenty eight or twenty-nine or something at that point. So at the point where you start not getting faster. Um mm. so you gotta know your limits.
1: Um, yeah, no, very smart, very smart indeed. No, it's scary, it's scary and stuff like that, happens for sure. Now let's chat about NSR racing. That's what you're doing now in Switzerland. Um that's what you've done in Australia as well, but you sold it there if I'm correct and then moved out to Switzerland is that how that happened?
2: Yeah, so the whole time I was a well cup mechanic I never you know earned enough money to actually live you know an entire year so I always had to have you know something going on on the side. Um, I started a suspension tuning business in Australia called NS Dynamics in 2009 and then sold out of that at the end of 2015 uh, because i managed to get a european visa and it made sense to be permanently based in europe uh just Mm -hmm. to keep world cups and stuff and so moved over here to switzerland um and started nsr racing um so just doing suspension service and tuning and suspension engineering um like you know Uh, like aftermarket parts and so on and then when I stopped doing stopped wrenching at World Cups it kind of became full-time and then in the last few months I've also taken on uh, Stendek data systems Um, so uh, doing support and development and sales Mm -hmm. for that as well
0: yeah cool
1: yeah because it was Nick Lester who from Dynamics, who basically told me to get you on. It was Nick that set this up, so big up to Nick. Um, and he does the he does the data acquisition stuff and and things like that. Now, on his episode, I think he was on episode one eighty. He was chatting about Dave Garland, and you helped Dave Garland develop the Standex system. Am I correct in saying that?
2: Yeah. So. I knew Dave because he was also ranching at World Cups for, you know, he'd been there for a long time before I even turned mm-hmm. up on. And in probably 2016, he started turning up with this this data system on, I think, Danny Hart's bikes at that point. And it was different to, to what was out already available in terms of data systems. And I bugged him for years to, to get me one. And eventually in 2019, he, he did. Um, and the Canyon team ran the data systems all that year. And through that season, I worked quite closely with Dave to, to develop the Stendex system to, to what it is now. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, it was a pretty mind-blowing learning process, like, learning stuff from dave from all his experience and also the point where there was all these kind of theories that we we knew and we used in terms of bike setup but we'd never been able to quantify them and all of a sudden we had this tool where you could you know you could do an eighth of a turn on a spoke or on all the spokes on a wheel and you could visibly see that in the data um and all of a sudden you had this tool where your ability to fine tune a bike was just so off the charts compared to what it had been previously. um, That, yeah, it was, it was really mind blowing. And Dave was like right at the forefront of that and coming up with new ways of looking at the data and um, just constantly like questioning and learning stuff. It's, it was really, really good to, to work with him.
1: Mm, Yeah, I'm sure. And Nick had the same kind of respect for the gentleman as well, who's very, very sadly no longer with us. Um, But, you know, that system that Dave developed and stuff. Are the bikes at that level so highly tuned? Are they are they like Formula One? You know, does that make a massive difference? Like you're saying an eighth of a turn on, on the wheel on the spokes and the wheel is it that finely tuned at these for these guys?
2: It it's kind of a case of how you want to look at things. So unless you have a data system that that is that advanced, it can't the bike can't be that finely tuned. Mm. But at the same time, every rider is looking for um, obviously any gains in setup and also through a weekend just to set up that they can ride confidently and be happy with. So anyone who doesn't have a data system like that, know their bike is not that fine tuned, but they would definitely like, like it to be that fine tuned. Um, mm. And there's this whole realm of, um, of performance that's beyond, what a rider can feel and then there's there's also the um this kind of a philosophy which apparently is typical of formula one where in f1 if a car goes out on the track and it's not perfectly set up for that specific run then it's a complete waste of money Be- because they have such limited track time and at world cups riders have a very limited track time if you lose a run through not having the right setup you you don't get that run back you don't get that half hour of a practice day back Mm. so it's super um advantageous to be to be in a situation where you can guarantee that the bike is ideally set up for the next run the rider does, um, and that so it's a huge amount of work and a huge amount of analysis and so on, but it is possible.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's weird because I would watch MotoGP, and you know those bikes say the the Yamahas or the Ducatis or whatever, some of the bikes work awesomely at some tracks and then at other tracks they don't work at all. They're just not suited for that track because of the cornering or whatever way the bike breaks or whatever way it comes out of corners or goes in the corners or whatever, this kind of thing. Like, is mountain bikes the same as that for different kind of trails and stuff or is it more rider-specific with the mountain bikes?
2: Um. I think th- across a world cup field, the bikes themselves are probably more similar than the MotoGP bikes. Cause in MotoGP, you've got the V4 versus inline four mm-hmm. and that makes a massive difference about line choice and strengths and weaknesses and so on. And obviously the a MotoGP bike is far more techie. So there's, far more chances for there to be variation between teams Mm -hmm. um i think there's definitely the possibility for that the thing that makes mountain biking unique though and makes it a lot harder to uh draw conclusions based on on data is lack of repeatability so there's um no one can ever repeat the, the run they've just done because the track changes every time you ride it the conditions change you have rider fatigue and stuff like that so it's really difficult like you can't get the top 20 and get them all to do a perfect run you know on a dry day at Lenzer Hyde and then do a perfect run on a dry day at Sanan and then compare across that and be like oh look like People running these wheel sizes did better here or, or whatever. Um, it's really hard to do that because of the lack of repeatability. Um, mm. But it doesn't mean that that doesn't exist. It just means it's harder to find. So um, there's you just basically have to use your brain a little bit more and look at things like, say, comparing Lenza Hyde to Sanan and talking about wheel sizes. Lenzehyde typically has a lot of those tighter bike park berms, particularly on the top half. Uh, and saint doesn't have that. saint has got a lot of fast flowing open corners. So you can look at that and go, oh, well, a, a full 29 is probably going to be better at Saint-Anne than it is going to be at Lenzehyde. So if you have a rider who's happy to chop and change, you could potentially go for a a mixed wheel bike at lens and then a a full 29 at uh sanan for example Mm -hmm. um but there's so many caveats like you'd have to have both those setups completely dialed and have the rider completely dialed on riding that type of bike and and so on so i think one of the reasons why going back to sort of what i said about we can't get the top 20 to all go and do a perfect run here and then go and do it somewhere else. I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that there's not enough. uh, There's not the same level of preparation in downhill as there is in a lot of motorsports Um, in terms of like testing, in terms of uh, work done at the team headquarters before going to a race and so on. And I think that probably relates down to the, the difference in budgets and, yeah
1: yeah wow it's crazy like when you're sending one of those riders out with the the stand system on their bike um and they're doing a run like what do you say to them do you say okay go as fast as you can from a to b or try and make this as smooth as possible how should they attack that run to give you the best opportunity to get the best data it would
2: depend on Like if you're, you know, just out on a test day or if you're actually at a race and stuff like that, but overall, um, I guess two simple things apply and that is, um, ride in a way that you want your bike to be set up for. So, you know, if you want to set your bike up for riding at 100%, we need you to ride at 100%, um, to get relevant data. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, uh, getting an unbroken data run. So basically the, the section of the track you choose to, to pay attention to, you don't obviously stop for a rest halfway down that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so it's, um, one of the, it's actually one of the big challenges with downhill is you can't firstly you can't get a rider to do a world cup race run unless they're at a world cup on a sunday afternoon and Mm. they can't emulate that level of intensity and the other problem is you if they ride at 100 percent all the time that obviously the risk factor goes through the roof and then you obviously have to get a helicopter to come and get them so Mm -hmm. You have to play a game of getting someone to write at around ninety-five percent, and being able to extrapolate that data into settings which would work at one hundred percent. So there's a bit of brain action involved.
1: Oh dear! <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> After a night
1: apart, and that's maybe not the best thing to, be to
2: do. Yeah, I, I definitely. Um, Using data at races definitely did affect the alcohol consumption. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, desperate, desperate! Uh, so let's chat about NSR and what you do there. So you're you're obviously doing the the data acquisition stuff there, but you're also heavily involved involved in the suspension setup. Can you tell us who you work with and what you kind of do there?
2: Um, yes and no. Uh, basically, I do anything from you know servicing a set of forks for a local guy to, to tuning a fork or shock for them to doing stuff like that for people who race or race professionally or race professionally at an extremely high level um unfortunately playing around with sponsors products um, when it comes to world cup riders is something that's not allowed um expressly forbidden in no sponsorship uh contracts as is the ownership of the product so i'm not there's not going to be a naming of names here um Mm. but i do things for example some some top riders i'll go and just go test i'll just go testing with them and help them with just set up using exactly what they've got so um, on teams that don't want to run any risk of um, losing sponsorship or, or anything like that. So I'll you know put a, a bunch of work in with them away from races and help them get on a, a setup which is going to maximize the performance of, of what they're working with. And then come a race weekend, uh, if I'm at the race, I'll probably give them some setup advice or if I'm not at the race, I'll probably just, you know, call them or, or text or whatever. Other guys, um, I'll, you know, I've been so, so far to do like a complete set of internals for the fork and for the shock. Um, so you have a, a Fox or Rockshox product that looks completely standard from the outside, um, in order to, to make sure there's no sponsorship issue uh but the everything inside is completely custom developed for for that rider on that bike
1: wow wow okay yeah wow that's pretty crazy um and i suppose you need a good relationship with these guys to be able to do that for them
0: right
2: yeah um <clears throat> i think i mean because i've been around the sport for so long i've i've known these people on a at least on a casual basis for for quite a while and then i mean when you go testing and you pretty much can i can pretty much guarantee a rider that i can find them two seconds a minute from a from a three-day test um when you go and do that and they get to experience for themselves not just the time gain but the the gain in confidence and uh, like ability to ride different lines and carry speed and all that sort of stuff. Once they realize the potential of that, um, you do sort of get, you do own their confidence very, very quickly, I think.
1: Mm, yeah. Yeah. Like as far as suspension and shocks and stuff go on the overall package of the bike, is that the components that would make the biggest difference? difference overall to the performance of a bike do you think
2: they're the they're, they're a popular choice because they're probably the things which make the biggest difference for a single component um you know like a fork can make a much bigger difference than a pair of grips or a saddle or something mm-hmm. um so they're definitely the first spot where everyone looks um However, looping back around to the data thing, if you have um, a sophisticated data set up, it does open your eyes to what can be done with all the other components and the interaction of, of those. But definitely suspension has the biggest range of adjustment in it. Um, so it's, it's usually the the first place to make the biggest gain like you can't easily change the amount of of flex in a frame or something like that like that just requires resources that people don't have Mm so although there might be a heap of performance to be found in that you'd never really get to that point whereas forks and shocks you can just very easily um very easily improve them and that's also partly due to the fact that most people racing at the top level are running what is essentially next year's production fork and shock. So it's, it's pretty easy to find some, some significant gains in, in a production fork or shock.
0: Yeah.
1: Wow. Wow. Crazy. Like as far as the technology goes, you know, and you've seen it change over the years, like, what do you think of the technology now, as far as shocks and suspension goes? Like it's getting pretty nuts, right?
2: Yeah, it's it's getting really good. Like for what what the customer has to pay, the the workmanship and the materials and the tolerances and all that sort of thing um, is amazing. In a lot of ways, the technology is just kind of, um, a rehash of existing stuff. Like we're not really seeing a great deal of something that's actually new. I mean, Fox live valve, um, is probably the best example. Like, um, you know, they're the first people to go out there and in mountain bike production stuff to go out there and put, you know, electronic control on the valving on the shock. Um, and, uh, but there's not a huge amount of there's, there's new ideas, but it's application of the existing technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, as I said, like what you get for, you go out and spend, you know, whatever it is, 600 bucks on a, on a shock or something like that. You're getting a lot for your money. Like, and you know it's beautifully made. It's super reliable. It's you know it does so much. I think that's pretty cool.
1: Mm. Yeah, for sure. Like, and as far as the weekend warrior, um, just kind of thinking of the the uh, normal mountain biker that goes out at the weekend, or just does it for social interaction, or just for a bit of crack with his mates. Um, like, as far as suspension setups, where do we go wrong and stuff like that? Is that something we just should be set and sag and you know rebound and all that kind of stuff or should we be looking a little bit more into it and trying to get the best out of it
2: i think in a single word emotion um so it's very difficult even if you're like you're a weekend warrior but you're like the best person in the world at setting suspension up even then on your own bike the the emotional side of your writing experience affects what you do with settings. So as a, um, like working as a mechanic and stuff like that, one of the key things is you provide a rider with a very objective, balanced view of things. And that is what prevents, prevents you going wrong in terms of settings. Um for the the weekend warrior who's you know not going to go out there and spend a bunch of money on aftermarket parts or tuning stuff I think the best piece of advice would be somewhere in the middle like if you're getting to the extremes of your your adjustments you're doing something wrong um unless you're at the extremes of the demographic that the product was designed for. So like most of your production forks and shocks will work really nicely for someone between say, I don't know, 65 and 95 kilograms. Um, Mm -hmm. and then, so if you've got a guy who's 120 kilograms, you can expect him to be on the limits of some of the adjustments. And if you've got a rider who's 50 kilos, same kind of deal, probably opposite direction. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest mistake we all make is allowing our emotions to affect what changes we make. So you you drop in and it's wet and rainy and slippery and you obviously scare the tits off yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you might have to edit that one. Um, so you pull over and you're like, Oh, there's gotta be there's gotta be some better clicks here. And for sure you could probably improve your adjustment by, you know, two clicks here, two clicks there. But by going ten clicks on one adjuster, that's just driven by the by the fact that you've just scared yourself shitless, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um so that's um that's where you need to be wary. Like, you know, and this goes all cuts it back back around to the bike as a system, and understanding the whole bike as a system, in a whole World Cup season, and you know, racing tracks from Peter Maritzburg, which was quite flat, to Val sol which is obviously steep. If you have a good setup, you only ever ev- ever vary probably a maximum of maybe three to four clicks on an adjuster in a given direction. Um, mm-hmm it's it's not one thing that's going to fix everything for you on your bike it's the the whole bike as a system that's probably the biggest thing people need to understand
1: mm-hmm. yeah because there's so much you know right there's your front fork there's your shock there's your tire pressure there's whatever tire you're running the width of your tire. all this affects how the bike performs um exactly. uh, uh, yeah it's crazy and it's like you say no no trails to see him ever again. Um, so, for us weekend warriors, like, you know, should we be looking at when you get a bike out of a store and they kind of do a rough setup for you in the store as far as sagging stuff goes for your weight? Is that good enough for most guys, or should we be educating ourselves and looking at it in a wee bit more depth?
2: I think if you want the best riding experience you should put some more effort into it um you know and that can vary from you know you can try and educate yourself and then obviously you have the problem of the internet being equally <laughs> full of useful <laughs> and non useful information
0: yeah
2: um having to try and sort through that it would definitely be a good idea you know to take a new bike take it to your favorite track Um, the one, you know, that you write all the time and you know, like the back of your hand and spend a few days just kind of, you know, trying to fine tune it yourself. Um, and then if you crap at that, obviously the next step is to start, you know, finding people who are going to help you be it people like Nick, um, who do data acquisition days or suspension tuning or a combination of the two or whatever. Um but ultimately if because one all that would be trying to find a good what good base setup and then as long as you don't go a couple of clicks from that on any given day, you're always gonna have a nicely balanced bike that performs pretty well. And the result of that is a good day riding and plenty of stoke.
0: Yeah
1: sounds good sounds good for sure
2: yeah it's
1: crazy because like i'm coming off an old 11 12 year old specialized stump jumper and the guys at chain reaction lent me one of the new nuke proof reactors one of the top end ones and i looked at the front suspension and was just like what no i just i really don't want to touch this because (laughs) i have no idea what all these things do you know I'm used to an on-off button, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have all these different things, all these, you know, and I'm just like, no, um, I'll just leave it as is. Uh, The bike worked lovely, but, you know, for something like that, that you know you're out of your depth on, taking it to somebody that works in suspension is probably the only way to go, right? And get them to kind of explain to you what this thing does and why you should be doing this or not doing this, you know.
2: Yeah, the you're like you're completely right. Like at some point, um, you know, it's the same with anything else. Like, um, if you cut your finger and you're like, Oh, I'll go and get a band-aid, but you cut your leg off, you're like, I should probably get myself to the hospital. <laughs> um, you have know, got for everything there's a point where you're like, I think I need an expert. Yeah. Um, the thing is with to understand about the suspension that everyone gets on the bike that they buy. Um, is it's this OE-based product which has been specifically engineered to have kind of like a broad – to fit a broad range of people without many negative uh, sensations.
0: Okay, yes.
2: So, and it's – in some ways, it's, it's actually amazing what companies like Fox and RockShox and that can achieve like that. The, the funny, like the flip side of that is if you have a in-depth in knowledge of suspension and um, are able to dyno test it and stuff, so you can actually see all the compression and rebound characteristics and so on, you very quickly realize that every fork and shock out there actually has a very, very small range of good adjustments. Um and if you put, if you basically set the sag, for someone, set the volume spaces um, on something that's got um, air in it, obviously, and you know set the the spring rate, and then just put these kind of base settings on where you know that this fork or shock works best with these these settings, the people will come back absolutely stoked. Um, mm. When I worked in morzine I worked in a bike shop at the bottom of the main lift and I was too busy doing service to be able to do bike setup for people. But people would come in, ask for bike setup, up and I'd be like, okay, how much do you weigh? What pedals do you run? What bike is it? What, you know, fork and shock it is. And I'll just rattle a, a bunch of settings off, off the top of my head. And they would be like, okay, cool. How, like, how much is that? And I'm like, well, Tell you what, go and do three runs. And if you like it, come back and give me 20 bucks. And the number of people who came back and gave me 20 bucks was pretty amazing, actually.
0: Really? Wow. Yeah.
2: Um, it just goes to show like how how easy it is to get lost in your settings. And um, the other side is um, if you're able to dyno test a fork or shock, that's where you actually understand how it works and that enables you to do good settings.
1: Mm. Yeah, there's a lot goes into it. And I think, you know, there's an old saying, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's like too much bike. So a lot of people are riding too much bike, basically, a bike that's well past their capabilities of actually riding, if you know what I mean. Um, Yeah. And in that case, I think people can overthink things a little bit if that makes sense
2: that's exactly right like if you um correlate it to um like motorbikes is the is the go-to because we all wish we rode motorbikes remember Um, (laughs) you look at like the mid-range stuff you see on on mountain bikes where you you have some adjustment but limited adjustment and then you have the high-end stuff that has all the adjustments a lot of oe motorcycle stuff lacks external adjustments or you know it doesn't have all the external adjustments um and that aside from cost it probably is um exactly for that reason because when you give people too many things that go click um they're bound to get it wrong and i think uh all those The best example in mountain bikes is things like the uh, Cane Creek double barrels, excuse me, (coughs) the Cane Creek double barrels um, and the Fox X2 shocks, and now some of the Fox forks, which offer high and low speed compression and high and low speed rebound. And you can't actually tell as a rider the difference, if the feeling you're having on the bike is caused by low speed rebound or high speed rebound. It's, mm-hmm. it's impossible. Like unless you're running data on that bike, you cannot tell if the thing that you felt was which one of those things that goes click.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And you look at anyone running one of those products and you take their settings and you dyno it and you can see, you get a bit of feedback from them and you can see what they were trying to do. You can see, why they have the feedback they have and you can see that they're lost and um you know on a dyno where you can look at the performance of the shock on a computer screen you can actually then migrate their settings to what they were trying to get put the shock back on their bike and um basically blow their mind
1: yeah yeah like that's the thing you know you know, the technology's there and the product's so good now that I think a lot of these high-end bikes, you know, it's like Nick said to me when I was chatting to him, you're just guessing. Unless you're running these things through some kind of data acquisition technology, you're just guessing.
2: There's that um, thing that uh, Steve at Vorsprung likes to hashtag, if, you, if you're not measuring, you're guessing.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very true man very true there's so much goes into it it's absolutely mind-boggling crazy when you add all these other elements and all into it It, it's nuts so as far as NSR goes have you any future plans for it are you staying in Switzerland for a while or
2: um take over the world (laughs) um uh no actually going to be moving to back to Australia um by the end of this year. Um, and that's sort of to access the summer season over there. Um, I'll probably still spend some time in Europe during the race season um, doing various forms of, of race support, be it with data or with suspension or both.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But, um, yeah, I'm going to be, uh, be relocating at some point. Um, hopefully when we all get get told we can take our masks off
1: yeah yeah man definitely and like as far as workshops and stuff go do you have a workshop in switzerland is it stuff you can take with you like how do you organize all that uh
2: you basically just chuck it all in a shipping container pay a bloody fortune and um hope it turns up on the other end yeah Um, wow. so yeah i have quite a it's not a huge workshop because i live in a, a small country that's got too many people in it but um I've got a workshop here with, um, uh, like milling machine, lathe, you know, dyno, all that sort of thing. So I can, in terms of engineering and stuff can produce quite a lot out of a a small workshop. So yeah, I'll be moving all that across to, across to Oz.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's crazy, man. Absolutely crazy. Like, do you enjoy what you do? Do you miss the world cup stuff? Um, are you happy with where it's landed you in the, in the bike industry?
2: Uh, I definitely miss the the good parts about World Cup racing, um, and for sure I want to uh, maintain my my contact with that that little world. Um, I don't miss the the daily grind of being a, a team mechanic. Um, I think those guys work far too hard for for far too little. Mm. Um, but yeah, there is the the love of racing, so going forward, I'll always be, um, involved some, somehow, you know, um, and I mean, that's also, you can sort of, aside from the business name, um, the direction of my products and so on is, is aimed more at, um, I guess the racing side than, um, just being a consumer product, not that Mm -hmm. it's not fit for consumers, but for example, Developing shock internals where no one can tell if they're in the shock or not. Um, in terms of marketing, that's not not a very strong product, um, but it's super useful, of course, if you want to drop it into a professional rider's shock without anyone knowing. Mm. Um, so, um, I'll probably start doing some some coloured anodized bits to go on the outside of forks and shocks, just so people know that. Something different inside,
1: yeah. Yeah, you need something that we star on it or something,
0: <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like under the under breath. Are you running that Nigel stuff in that shock,
0: or <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah? Uh, crazy. Uh, well, listen, man, I've kept you far too long. Um, you know, we, we said we'd try and do this for an hour, but we're, we're nearly an hour and a half now. Um, you can just get lost chatting about bikes and stuff, can't you?
2: Yeah, you can kind of um, just keep keep going on until you run out of beer, really.
1: <laughs> Good stuff, Nigel. Well, listen, if anybody wants to know more about NSR Racing and what you're doing there, how how do they best find you on socials or best find you online or whatever?
2: Uh, yeah, on the worldwide internet, um, nsr-racing.co um, website um, and nsr racing on instagram and facebook and stuff as well
1: yeah cool man cool well listen thanks so much for coming on bro um it's been a pleasure chatting to you and um if i'm ever over the oz side i'd love to hook up with you and uh go for a surf or go for a ride or something that'd be amazing
2: yeah i'd love to take you to feed the sharks
1: <laughs> yeah dude that's scary man that's getting that's getting like that isn't it
2: it seems to be in oz like. They- I mean, it's just more people in the water, um, and obviously sharks need to eat. Um, It's led to some good stories, though. Did you see the one last year about the guy who punched the shark in the head to save his wife? (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, Down at Port Macquarie, which is currently underwater, um, yeah, this guy and his wife were out surfing, and then a shark – uh, bit her on the leg or something and was trying to drag her under and he swam across, punched it in the eye or whatever, and or in the face. I don't really know how to describe the anatomy. Um, anyway, <laughs> basically punched the shark in the head repeatedly until the sh- shark changed its mind. And then he um, helped wifey to shore. Wow. Um, so she, she picked the right one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Well, re- remember, You'll know Mick Fanning from New South yeah? Wales, right?
2: Yeah, he punched one at, was it, um, Jeffrey's Bay or something?
1: Yeah, I was watching that live, man.
2: Oh, no way. Yeah,
1: you know, because I'm still well into the surfing side of things, and I was watching that, You can stream it live. And I was watching it live, and I seen that happening live, and it was the craziest thing. He was so lucky, man. So, so lucky. Unbelievable. But you know what was the crazier thing? He was surfing with who was he competing with at that stage? Um Julian Wilson.
0: Yeah.
1: Young Julian Wilson. He saw it happening and he paddled over to try and help Mick. No way. Yeah. Like fight or flight, man. Like fair play. You know, and he's a he's a young he's a father. He's got a very, very young kid. And he paddled over. To try and help Mick when that shark was attacking his board. Luckily, it wasn't attacking him; it attacked his board at the end of the day. But Mick punched it as well.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's it's gnarly. Like times like that, you definitely get to get a good insight into who people actually are. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's crazy um, how surfers are so familiar with that danger that they react differently to to how we would
1: yeah but you know the one thing watching the surf tour the, the pro surf tour for years and years and years now since the introduction of drones and uh-huh. they send they send these drones up now and keep an eye on the competition areas for sharks the the comp has been stopped more times in the last two or three years I can ever remember in the last 20 years.
2: Yeah, because the sharks were always there.
1: They were always there. You just didn't see them.
2: Yeah. Um, you know,
1: but they can see them now with these drones.
2: Yeah, there's, um, you know, a lot of beaches in Australia uh, have shark nets. Mm, yeah. But the net only goes two meters under the surface. Mm-hmm. Because that's apparently where the sharks like to hang out. There's a really good helicopter photo of the Gold Coast, like midsummer, fucking like, you know, thousands of people in the water. And you can clearly see the the shark nets and you can clearly see about 12 or 15, like bigger than two-meter sharks on the wrong side of the shark nets.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Like, they've always been there. Um, Yeah, that's it. I mean, they don't, You know, they don't really like to eat humans.
1: Mm. um, We're too bony. We're too bony.
2: Yeah, just not worth the effort. Yeah. Um, The interesting thing will be with all this flooding in Australia, particularly up around Queensland there, is um, because all those coastal rivers are full of um, bull sharks, but the rivers are always so muddy, no one realises that they're full of sharks. Mm. And usually after a flood event like this, you get sharks turning up in all kinds of wrong places. Um, Like in the Brisbane floods 10 years ago, someone got a good good photo of their backyard, which was like two metres underwater. You got the top of the the swing set and then a fucking shark fin.
1: You are joking me.
2: And there was a, after a couple of years ago, there was a cyclone and flooding up near Cairns. And Someone posted a photo and it's just like, like a, a small country lane, like, you know, car with tarmac, you know, fields mm-hmm. and, that, and a two and a half meter bull shark on the road.
0: Oh, dear. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's unreal. Yeah, because we get warned of that because bull sharks and tiger sharks swim up rivers, right? Yeah. And we got warned about that in uh, Indo. There was a certain break you had to paddle over a river. Oh,
0: okay. And, uh, yeah.
1: They were saying that be very, very careful because there's there's tiger sharks feed at the mouth of that river and they well go up the river.
0: Yeah. Um, okay.
1: There was a Japanese surfer got bit clean and two crossing that river. The oh, the sorry. tiger just come out. The tiger shark come out and just took him and everything board and everything just bit him clean and two. Crazy, yeah. Huh?
2: tigers are like one of the most aggressive ones or something aren't they
1: yeah tigers are i think tigers and um i think bull sharks are pretty bad as well
2: yeah bull sharks kill more people but it's also like they kill the most people yearly but it's also because they can't like they're usually in muddy rivers so they can't see yeah So
1: So it's a taste taste tester.
2: (laughs) Yeah, they're like, oh, there's something up there that might be food. I'll just bite it and see if it is food. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, like around um, Brisbane Gold Coast, I mean, after the 2011 floods, there's now bull sharks in Brisbane's water supply.
1: My word.
2: And, um, yeah, it's – like Gold Coast has got like all these housing estates on these canals and stuff, mm-hmm. and those canals are full of fucking sharks. But dude, not many people die. It's all right.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. Like you know, the way I look at it is we're in their domain now. If we go out surfing, that's their playground, man. So you know, it's you just take the risk and go and do it. You know. It's, yeah, it's not their fault. Like, you know, it's not their fault. We're killing off all their food and everything else, you know, and I'm encroaching on their territory. So, you know, fair
2: play. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a known risk. It's the same as, um, the same as riding your bike and stuff. Like, you know, you know, there's an element of risk. There's like a whole host of potential bad outcomes. Um, but there's also the chance you're going to walk out your door after this and get struck by lightning.
0: Yeah, um, that's true.
2: You've, I th- as like the human brain is really good at, um, focusing past all those risks. Cause if we thought about them all the time, we'd just sit inside and shit ourselves like that. That, um, I can't remember where she's from, but some chick who was a top surfer got struck by lightning the other day. Didn't she?
1: You're joking me. Really? I haven't heard that.
2: Yeah. So she was out like, cause it's surfing in the Olympics or some shit now. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Uh, huh. Yeah, so she was like Olympic hopeful or something. Anyway, top female surfer. I went surfing the other day and um, yeah, got fried. Dead. Yeah.
1: Oh wow! I must check that out. That's shocking. Yeah, because you had to qualify through the through the professional tour to get on the Olympics. You know, so it was the top three, I think, from every country, kind of thing. You know, whatever uh-huh. way you end up in the pro tour. Yeah were you know you automatically then were available for the olympics so yeah crazy man crazy
2: Uh, nuts
1: we're living in crazy times
2: a flip side to that when i was in um peter maritzburg in 2009 um i met a chick who raced for moorwood and uh patrick moorwood told me that she had been struck by lightning seven times what Like seven different occasions. (laughs) And on on three of those she had died and obviously been revived.
1: My word. She has to be the unluckiest person ever.
2: (laughs) Unluckiest or luckiest? Like
1: Yeah, whatever way you look glass half full or half empty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy, man that's unreal dude that's unreal well here listen thanks so much for coming on the show man thanks for coming on the podcast I appreciate you spending the time and uh,
2: it's been a pleasure
1: yeah good luck for the rest of the year and good luck for moving back to Oz and uh, don't go swimming in any of those rivers for frick's sake
2: no not until you come when when they're busy with you I'll just go get a quick dip (laughs)
1: yeah good stuff man good stuff well here have a good day enjoy the rest of the week
2: alright right. cheers Gareth
1: that's a wrap for episode 186 i hope you enjoyed it folks i hope you took plenty from it and had a bit of a laugh with nigel and myself there Uh, nigel's seen it all he's uh, been into everything there on that circuit and um, i just love chatting with the guy i think he's such a motivated fella he's done so much and he's still got so much to do with his NSR company and um, I look forward to seeing what he does because it's all going to be great stuff. Now if you want to know a little bit more about what Nigel and myself chat about you can simply visit the show notes mtb-tribe.com you will see links there to what Nigel's got going his social links all that kind of stuff for your easy access now Nigel I just wanted to say thanks for coming on the podcast I really enjoyed our chat and um, I do hope to get out with you at some stage out there and do a bit of surfing hopefully there's no sharks about at that time I'll certainly not be water skiing up a river or anything like that but um, good luck with 2021 mate and I hope everything goes well with the move back to Oz and the NSR grows from strength to strength now, if you're enjoying the podcast and you want to show your support, the best way is by simply subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Every one of your ratings helps boost us on Apple's algorithms and helps spread the good word about the show to more people. If you're not on Apple, you can find and subscribe via Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to your podcasts from. We also have a website, mtb-tri.com where you can find the complete bike catalogue, listen and download every show from there for free. You can also subscribe there and get one email per week with a quick and easy link to listen to the podcast. You can also get involved on social media. We are at MTB Tribe on Instagram and Facebook. You can PM me there with any of your questions or if you want to send the show an email, you will find me at info at that's all we have for you this week, folks. Thanks for tuning in, and if you lasted this long, well done. I do appreciate you spending the time. So until next week, until we have another episode and another exciting guest. As always, get the bikes out, hit the trails, and stay MTB
0: stoked.